Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Connie. And I'm Danny. And as God is transforming the seasons into this beautiful fall moment, God is also seeking to transform our hearts and lives through the celebration of worship. We're glad that you've joined us. Come on in. Our first lesson is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts, and this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a position to occupy. If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking, the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Then someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. 
He said to him, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our New Testament scripture today is a real humdinger of a Jesus story, isn't it? Jesus tells a wealthy young man to sell everything, give the proceeds to the poor, and then follow him. This is not typical for Jesus, is it? But we do remember that he had some pretty big asks for others. The fishermen left their nets to follow. Matthew, the tax collector, left his income and his influence to follow Jesus. And Jesus calls each of us to pick up our crosses each day and follow him. So encountering Jesus always involves some sort of change. Maybe it's a healing. Maybe it's a sacrifice. Maybe it's simply a radical reorientation to the way we look at our lives and encountering Jesus is always a call to discipleship. And listening to this passage again this morning, think to yourself how you might feel, uh, how you feel about it. Think about how it might feel to hear this passage if you are a person who has nothing. Maybe these words of Jesus give you hope. Or perhaps, if you have a lot, maybe Jesus' words sound unreasonable. Most of us would place ourselves somewhere between those two poles, but wherever we find ourselves, we find ourselves wondering, what does Jesus really mean? We know that this is the only time, at least the only time I know of in the New Testament when Jesus asks this of an individual, but we also know that it's important because three of the four gospel writers tell the same story. This means that whether we like it or not, we've got to wrestle with it, right? So the young man comes to Jesus with a a big question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? I'd say this young man is something of an eager beaver. He is determined to wrangle out of Jesus an answer to his question, something he can do. Not just something he can do to be a better person, but something he can do to have eternal life. And perhaps since giving to the poor was considered the most outstanding work that a Jewish person could do in Jesus' time, maybe he was hoping for Jesus to ask him to give a large donation to something that would ensure that he would have eternal life. Maybe he thought Jesus was going to say, well, if you give a large donation to the temple fund for the poor, then you'll have eternal life. 
Or if you build a leper colony in the northern lands, in Galilee, for people in need there, then you will have eternal life. Or maybe if you feed and clothe me and my disciples, then you will have eternal life. But Jesus didn't answer the man so directly. Instead, he followed up the man's question with a question of his own. Why do you ask me what is good? And then Jesus redirects the man with regard to goodness. There is only one who is good, and that is God. Good is not a what. It's not a deed. Good is a who, and it is God. Any good that is within us, any good in our world is a good gift of our good God. And then Jesus tells the man, well, if you want to enter life, follow the commandments, keep God's law. Did you notice that the man was after eternal life and Jesus talks to him about if you want to enter life, keep God's commands. The man was focused on what he could do right now with his end game in mind. Sort of like those one and done players in college sports, you know, how in baseball or football or basketball, very promising high school athletes can come into some university settings and in one year show their mojo to the major leagues, the professional sports scouts, one year in college, and then they're done, and they're on to the professional leagues. But Jesus is not interested in a one-and-done path to glory, but he directs the man to an everyday way of living. This man is focused on eternal life as a possession, but Jesus invites him to a journey, to a path, that's right there in front of him. He says, God's law is where you join the journey to eternal life. But this man still has questions. Which commands do you mean? And Jesus reels off the second table of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't, don't murder, don't lie. Remember to honor your parents and love your neighbors as you love yourself. The way to eternal life is to take God's commands seriously, to live by them and to learn from them. And when you get right down to it, it demands a lot of us, doesn't it, to follow God's law? Jesus expounded on the law early in Matthew's, earlier in Matthew's gospel, and he said things like this. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother or sister, you are liable for judgment. He ups the ante. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or I might add a man, with lust in his or her heart, has already committed adultery. 
Jesus has a high bar for us to meet. But when this man hears the second table of the law, which he's very familiar with, he responds very confidently. He says, I've kept all these. What still do I lack? And Jesus says, well, here you go. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be grown up and mature, sell everything you have. Give the proceeds to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and you can come and follow me. Now, when we hear Jesus answer, we may wish that the young man had stopped asking so darn many questions. Stop it with the Ten Commandments. He was living the law well and faithfully. He worshiped God. But this young man went away grieving and sad, just crestfallen. Why? Because he had many possessions. Here we have this man's particular coming to Jesus moment, and it's a sad one. It kind of leaves this cloud of dismay hanging in the air. So I wonder, is Jesus serious? Or is Jesus just exaggerating to make a point? I think the answers to those two questions are yes and yes. Jesus is serious about the weight and the responsibility of wealth and possessions. And yes, Jesus often spoke in hyperbole to make his point abundantly clear. Just after this passage in Matthew's gospel, he goes on to tell his disciples that it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard him say this, they said, who then can be saved? Jesus says for mortals, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Now, interpreters and lovers of the scriptures have for centuries been trying to make sense of this story. And there was one man who in the ninth century made up the idea that in Jerusalem there was a gate into the, the temple mound and that the gate was a very low gate. And when camels came to that gate, their load would have to be unpacked so that they could enter the city without the load on their back. And the story was sort of made up, and it is fabricated, it's not true, um, about the, the wall, the low gate. Um, but it was made up to encourage the rich to unburden themselves of their wealth in order to enter the kingdom. And we know this isn't true, but this story drips with the implication that, with, that those with resources need to buy their way into heaven. You and I know this is not something we can ever do. We can't save ourselves by doing or by giving more. Each and every one of us, regardless of our wealth, have to rely on the grace of God to enter eternal life with Jesus. We follow 
Jesus on that path. And eternal life is not a piece of real estate, is it, to be bought? You can only enter life by following Jesus. Now, I have thought a lot of this about this man. He seems to me to have been quite a juggler. Like he was juggling responsibilities of his faith community, the, of his family, of the wealth that had been tr- entrusted to him. He must have felt like he had to keep his eye on all of these things he was juggling all at once. And keeping all those, bu- those balls in the air at one time takes skill and it takes attention. And when we focus our attention on w- only what we can see, inevitably, we learn that we have some blind spots. I drive a small SUV, and it has some pretty pronounced blind spots. So my car has a little orange light in the uh, left-hand rearview mirror that will go on if there is another car occupying my blind spot. And if it weren't for that little light, it would be pretty easy for me to do some good harm to myself and to others, wouldn't it? So could it be that this man's wealth was his particular blind spot? In his, in his time, just like in ours, wealth was viewed as a blessing of God, an evidence of God's blessing in one's life. Jesus knew this, of course, and earlier in Matthew's gospel, another thing he said is, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where vermin get in and destroy, where thieves can steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. It's a matter of the heart, isn't it? Now, in our nation, we know that wealth is a significant blind spot. Our standard of living is so much higher than much of the world's population. Even the poor in our nation have greater access to food and to shelter and to care than in poorer nations. And it's easy for us, because we know about this, to miss the poverty that surrounds us in, here in Columbus and in the whole of our nation. And we know how tricky issues of wealth and possessions can be. We are so tempted to point a finger at others who have more and say, you know, I'm not rich. I don't have a lot. I don't have as much as that person. We compare ourselves to others, don't we? Or I'll only be rich when I have a million dollars. We minimize what we do have with the awareness that we don't have as much as others and the awareness that we actually do have enough to live on and enough to share with others. Or some of us might say, I have worked my fingers to the bone to to earn this money and I have saved money. And this might be true. But even in those situations, God calls us to remember that God is the giver. And every gift 
even those things we've worked hard for come to God, come from God and are not an excuse for ignoring the needs of our neighbors. God is concerned about the economic well-being of people. In our reading from Deuteronomy, we learned that part of the way of life prescribed in God's law for the Israelites was the cancellation of debts. At the end of every seven years, the Israelites were to cancel all debts, calling them paid in full. And that was particularly for their Israelite neighbors. It was a community rule there. In other words, in God's economy in the Israel, among the Israelites, debt was allowed. People could take out loans to do the things they needed to do to build up the promised land as God's people. But debt was never allowed to destroy or to enslave people. God had enough confidence in his people that they would be able to build a society that reflected God's character. And even when debt could not be repaid, there was to be grace. God instructed them at the end of this passage to give generously to the poor without a grudging heart, to be open-handed toward their fellow Israelites who were poor and needy. And the whole of Scripture models this open-handedness and open-heartedness and a deep, deep concern for the poor. So we're called to share what we have. But this story is not just about one man the story of the man we often call the wealthy young ruler and his journey of faith. It's about the well-being of his whole community. Those who have resources are blessed to bless others. We know this. And I really love what John Calvin, our great-great-great-great-grandfather in the Presbyterian faith, wrote about this rich young man. He writes, Jesus points out this man's own particular disease as if he were touching an ulcer with his finger. Ooh. You know that almost all the people who came to see Jesus came for healing. Jesus healed people of their ailments. The blind could see. The demon-possessed were freed of their demons. Jesus healed with great compassion. These coming to Jesus moments we remember as restoring to people what they needed to live a rich and full life. So I wonder, do you think this is a healing story too? Do you think that the man, the root of the man's ailment was his wealth, and perhaps he knew just how sick he was, although he certainly was surprised by Jesus' response. Maybe he knew deep down in his heart that he was missing something big in life. He lived a life that most folks would envy, but something was missing. And he wondered, his mind may be flooded with questions, why do I live so well and others have it so hard? What is my life really about anyway? Is there more to life than just checking all the right boxes and being an upright, moral, God-fearing citizen? If I have been so good, why do I feel 
so empty. There's got to be more to life than this. So how might Jesus' great demand bring healing and new life to this troubled man? Might it be that his attachment to his wealth might need to be loosened up a bit for him to enter fully into the life of following? And how might that be true for us? One of my favorite storytellers is uh, United Methodist pastor and bishop, Will Willimon. And he, for many years, was a college campus minister at Duke University. And he tells a story of going through this passage with a group of college students one night in Bible study. And he asked them, what do you make of this story? And one of the students, students said, had Jesus ever met this man before? And Willemann said, well, why do you ask? And the student replied, because you see, Jesus seems to have a lot of faith in him. He demands something risky and something radical. I wonder if Jesus knew that this particular guy had a gift for doing things that were risky and things that were radical. In my experience, he went on to say, a professor only demands the best from the students who he thinks are able to meet that bar. The smartest, the brightest, the most devoted students. The teacher will ask for more. So this, this young man says, I wonder what it was about this young man that uh, made Jesus have so much faith in him. I love that. Don't you? A new take on a story that feels like bad news suddenly turned to really good news, and I think we can welcome it as good news too. Just because the man was grieved at Jesus' answer doesn't mean that he didn't return to Jesus. Now, we certainly have no record of that, but we have records of faith in Christ spreading after, especially after Jesus' resurrection. But maybe it's even possible that the young man returned to Jesus with more questions, different questions. I recently ran across a letter that my grandmother wrote to me when I was a freshman in college, and I was out of Columbus, out of town, and it was the first letter she wrote to me. And she expressed her confidence in me that I would do well in college. And then she said, remember, Connie, you only get out of life what you put into it. Jesus gives us a similar challenge. He is confident that we can learn from following him. So it is in this place of attention to his commands, and walking in and receiving his amazing, abundant grace that we may live a life in God's presence now and for all of eternity. So each of us is on a journey. We're on a journey with God. And with each season of our lives comes new opportunity, new challenges, and God will continue to refine us for as long as we are in this life. Sometimes that's fun and joyful. Sometimes it's really challenging. 
but our faith is not lived out as a private matter between us and God. Rather, we are called to live as part of a caring community, a community that cares for one another and for our greater world and community. Our calling is not just spiritual, but it's, it's, um, it's economic as well. It's not just receiving from God, but it's giving back. So in this stewardship season, as we consider supporting the life and the ministry of this congregation, I ask you to consider the riches God has entrusted to you, your time, your talents, your treasure, and ask God how God would have you respond in this season of giving back. Alleluia and amen.